again, church, if you would, I know you're expecting me maybe to preach through Joel. Um, this morning I had a perfect storm of, or this morning, this week, had a extremely busy week, a perfect storm of work and family and church things and personal things that all came together. And so I'm going to be re-preaching a sermon through Haggai, um, but if you would, please stand to your feet once you found Haggai chapter 2, verses 15 through 19. Haggai chapter 2, verses 15 through 19. God's word says this. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would bless your word. Bless us with your presence. Bless us with clarity of understanding of what you want us to know. God, gift us with strength and endurance to do what you would have us to do, to think what you would have us to think. Transform us by your spirit, God, we pray. Lord, what might seem like an obscure passage is is something that is filled with grace and meant to lead us to Christ. And so I pray that that you would do that, God, that we would behold Christ and we would look upon him and have our faith nourished and strengthened, that we would come away knowing that Christ is a great Savior and that we would worship him above all with our very lives not just in our singing, but in our actions and our thoughts and our deeds. May we be living sacrifices unto him for his glory's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, please be seated. Guests, please be seated. The sermon is titled, When Grace Floods In. When God's Grace Floods In. History matters. I know history was not my strong suit in school. Um, I enjoyed maths and sciences and things like that. But history matters. The history of our country matters. The history of our country tells us why the founding fathers framed the Constitution the way they did and why amendments were put in place. The history of our country helps us to know and understand why there's racial tensions within it. Knowing the past is important because it keeps us from making the same sort sort of mistakes that were detrimental to others. Knowing your own personal history is important as well. You are where you are today because of particular events in your life. And some of you have learned to uh, deal with those events for better or for worse. For those of us that came from uh, a sordid past or a, a rough past, maybe you don't want to ever go back to where you were. And your memories of those things motivate you to stay on a better path. But for some, those awful memories, they continue to haunt you, they continue to plague you, and they don't help you. The past continues to paralyze you instead of propelling you. And it continues to depress you instead of causing you to thrive. Believe me, I understand both sides of the story. It was 2006. I was a lot younger then. How many years ago is that? I can't even, (laughs) 17 years ago. I was in my early 30s. I had been in full-time youth ministry for 11 years, and I suddenly found myself being fired for preaching and teaching the things that I preach and teach now, the doctrines of grace. Terminated from my church for preaching expositionally, for shifting a student ministry from one that was man-centered to being Christ-centered. So in one fell swoop, I lost my job, I lost my church, and I lost my family because we were related to the senior pastor at that church. And in the next few years, when I looked back at the past, it was not fun. It was paralyzing and it was depressing and it caused me to be bitter. It often sapped the hopes out of my dreams. 
Many bitter years, I can tell you that. And I often wondered if God was removing me from ministry. I had no idea where God was trying to take me. I just knew that all that I loved to do was gone. I don't know if you've ever been in a similar situation where your past haunts you and it hurts you. And every day you're reminded of that. Because every day I would go to work in the car business, I would be reminded that I'm not a full-time pastor anymore. Every day I was haunted by that. You could all probably get up here and tell some type of similar experience where you were enjoying life and you suffered something immensely horrible and now looking back on the situation is hard for you. For some of you, that painful past again has served to help you, not further hurt you. And some of us, it has caused us you know, more havoc. And by the end of today's sermon, I pray that you, we're all in a, a similar place. I pray that God just unifies us and that we can look back at, at our collective past. Our collective past, we can see our present state and we can see what God's future grace has for us. I pray that today is supremely encouraging and helpful for you. In our text today, we see God calling Judah to look at her past, to look back, to see her past transgressions, to see uh, where devastation came from and how God was punishing them. This recollection, though, in looking back, was not meant to discourage them. It was not. It was there to remind them of what they were doing for so long, But this looking back at the terrible past was supposed to be in contrast to the coming blessings that they were going to experience from God because he was going to restore them and lift them up. In essence, God is saying, remember where you were because here's where I'm taking you. It was to serve in contrast so that they would want to remain in the blessings of God and not return to the sin that once dominated their lives and their hearts. And church, this is where we're going today. We're going to look at how sin once dominated us so that we can continue appreciating the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I first preached this uh, through Haggai uh, in, from 2017 to 2018. And um, on Wednesday nights, I was actually re-preaching through it when we had our Wednesday night service. And I only got through four out of the six sermons. And so I have two more to go to get on video. And uh, so uh, anyway, that's one reason I'm doing it. But again, uh, this, this, it was a blessed week this week, but it was extremely busy between personal things, family things, work things, and church things. And um, I needed just a little reprieve from sermon preparation. So forgive me if you've heard this before. If you haven't, well, let me ask, who's heard this sermon through Haggai? Okay, so just a couple of you. All right, so for most of you, it's brand new. I should have never said anything, all right? I'm like, this guy's lazy. (laughs) All right, re-preaching old stuff. Every once in a while, as pastors have to do that, especially those of us that don't work full-time at the church. It it can be tough at times, all right? So let me tell you what's going on, because uh, you may not know what the book of Haggai is about. I don't know anybody named Haggai, so it's it's a peculiar name. But prior to the events of Haggai, he's a prophet, Prior to these events, and I have some notes on the screen that will kind of guide you through where I'm going. All right, prior to these events, the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, and you should know about that because we've been talking about that through Joel, right? Well, they had just finished 70 years of exile. 70 years of exile. Exile means to be removed from your home, homeland. So they were not in Judah, not in Israel, not in um, their homeland. During this time of exile, of being removed from their land, they were captive under the Babylonian Empire. The reason they they were carried off into captivity of slaves and away from their homeland was because of the discipline of God. Judah had violated covenant with God again. How many times do we talk about their violation of covenant with God? And so God issued the judgments that he promised that would come to them for forsaking him. And so Jerusalem was sacked. Three attacks upon Jerusalem, and they, Jerusalem fell. The temple was destroyed. Sacrifices were no longer able to be offered, and the Jews were carried off into captivity under the Babylonians. And that's where we hear of stories like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and uh, Abednego. Right? We hear about those stories under King Nebuchadnezzar and, and other rulers. Well, this discipline, the seven years of being carried off into captivity is about to end. They're no longer under Babylonian rule. The Babylonians aren't in power anymore, but the Persians are. The Persians with King Cyrus. King Cyrus, he issues a decree, and this decree allows the Jews 
to be deported back to their homeland. They're, they're no longer going to be in exile. And so they're allowed to go back home to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that was destroyed previously. That's why particular books in the Bible are called post-exilic, post-exile. So I'm giving you a little bit of help here, maybe to help you understand some biblical things. Um, and so they're allowed to go back to their homeland after the exile, post-exile. And then just like the sacking of Jerusalem happened in three stages, so does the return to Jerusalem. It happens in three different stages. And the events of Haggai happen in the first stage. Okay, you with me so far? Not too hard to understand, just a little bit of history. During this initial return, they're excited. The first couple of years, they, they rebuilt the altar. And they started offering sacrifices on it. And they even laid the foundation of the temple. But as is the case, opposition always rises against Israel, against Judah, against the Jews. These officials arose. They discouraged them. And uh, I'm sorry, the enemies arose. And the enemies began to bribe officials. And it slowed down their progress created all kinds of red tape, if you will, and so they weren't able to get the building permits, you know, because we live in Hesperia, and it takes forever, right? We know those kind of situations. That's kind of what's going on. Everything comes to a halt. A couple years of progress, everything stops. Now 16 years have passed, and nothing has been done to further rebuild the temple. That's what the prophet Haggai is writing about. It's there to rebuke them, to stir them up, to strengthen them as well, this remnant of Judah, to start rebuilding the temple so that blessings from God can return to them. The temple is an important part of Scripture when we read through it because it helps us to understand redemption. It helps us to understand and paint a picture, not just to the Jews, but to us, of how it is that God wants to live with humanity, but how sin has ruined that, and how that's fixed through a substitute sacrifice and through a priesthood. Priests who are mediators between God and, and the rest of uh, Jewish humanity. And so this all points a picture ultimately to Jesus Christ, who is great high priest, who is perfect sacrifice, who is true temple. Okay? And so God wants this temple rebuilt. And he's going to bless them for doing so. And so God gives a message to Haggai. Haggai is supposed to then mediate the message and he's supposed to give it to a guy named Zerubbabel, right? That's a mouthful, right? Zerubbabel, bubble, right? Zerubbabel. He's a governor of Judah because there are no kings at this time. They've been in captivity. He's supposed to give the message also to Joshua, who is the high priest, who is also the elder, one of them at Sovereign Way Christian Church, right? Don't mix them up. I'm not that old, right? So you got Joshua, the high priest. You got Zerubbabel, the governor. The message comes to them. And then the, these leaders are supposed to pass the message on to the rest of Israel, to the rest of Judah. And the message is this. Why does the temple lie in ruins while you're building yourself very nice houses? Ooh, can you feel the sting of that one if you were them? Why is my house undone, God says, while yours gets all the finest treatments? Consider your ways, Judah. God sees. You don't have enough to eat. Although you do eat, there's not enough. You drink and you're still thirsty. You have clothes, but you aren't warm. The money that you earn falls through the holes in the bags that you have. Consider while you are struggling economically, Judah, consider. You see, what God is doing is he's calling them to remember the covenant that he made with them. They're to remember that disobeying God leads to punishment and to hardship. And so God instructs them. He says, I want you to go up to the hills. I want you to collect wood. I want you to rebuild the temple. Then I will be pleased, and then I will bless you. And I will return to you the things that I've taken away. And so God reminds them that he is the one who has stricken them with hardship. And so one of the things that we learned as we went through Haggai, one of the first lessons that we learned is that our priorities must be God's priorities, which are centered in Christ, ultimately. We are to seek his kingdom first, right? Isn't that what Matthew six thirty three tells us? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So God is calling Israel, but he calls believers to do the same thing. So what is Judah's response? Or what is the response to Judah, I should say? Okay, uh, From Judah. 
Well, they began to do what God asked them to do. They started to rebuild, and, and we learn in Haggai that it was God who stirred them up, God who stirred them up to do these good works. And so we learned that we too, we must obey what God tells us to do when he stirs us up to, to repent of sinful things in order to do the right things that glorify Jesus Christ and make him known when we get back to our right priorities of living for God. Not long after the construction, discouragement sets in again. So they get discouraged by the officials. 16 years have passed. They resume construction, and then they get discouraged again. Why? Okay, well, number one, they have limited resources. Because of they, they've been in a recession, so to speak, from God, the God-sent recession upon them, they have limited resources. So they don't have all the finances to do what God asked them to do. Number two, they're in a month within the Jewish calendar that is very financially expensive because of many feasts and festivals and sacrifices that are required of them at this time. So now they got added bills on top of not having enough resources. And on top of all of this, they're discouraged because by the foundation's look of it, when they look at it, they can see this is a lot smaller than the previous one that was destroyed the first time. Oh my goodness. And so they, they saw no significance. They saw no magnificence in what was going to be the second temple because it looked smaller. And so they didn't understand the significance that God was trying to communicate. Rather, that it was just, we just wanted to be big. The significance of the temple right, was that it would show sinful Israel how mankind could be right with God. And so it shows that God must judge sin, but how sin is dealt with through a sacrifice. So ultimately, that is the significance of the temple, not its magnitude, not its square footage, but what it is trying to teach us. And ultimately, we know that it's Christ who it pointed to. And so the temple was there to portray all this, that God's love for humanity and his desire to live with them, all right? But again, because of discouragement, construction stops. And so God has a further message for them. He says, be strong, work, and do not fear. God's spirit was with them, he tells them. Get up and work. I am with you. They didn't have the funds, but you know what God promised to do? God promised to shake the nations. And he says, I'm going to shake the nations in such a way that they're going to give you the money to rebuild the temple. And historically, that actually happened. Scripture records in Ezra 6 that the Persian king Darius, he funded the temple, the rebuilding of it, from the royal treasury that he amassed from the nations when he conquered them. And so God did shake the nations, and he collected all this through the Persian king Darius, and Darius is the one who funded it. God did what he said he would do when it comes to restoring the temple. Now, the Lord promised that a great glory would fill this temple, so this glory was, was shown in all the rich treasures that God used to decorate the temple. That's one way in which this glory was shown. But there was a greater glory, an even greater glory than just gold and precious metals and beautiful colors and fine linens. There was something greater than that decorating the temple. The greater glory would come when Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, would, would bless that temple with his very presence. Because in the Old Testament, you see God inhabiting his cosmic temple, which is creation. You see God coming to inhabit the tabernacle, God blessing his glory upon the first temple that was built. And so the Jews were waiting for God to come and visit, God to come and visit the second temple. And we know that in the third temple, right, which is the church, we are the temple now, who comes to live in us? The Holy Spirit. Do you see how all this connects together in theology, and biblical theology, what God is doing? He's always meant to live with humanity. And, but they're waiting for this, God, when are you going to come? God says, I'm going to put glory in it, not just the glory of treasures, but eventually we know that Jesus comes. And he is with us, all right? What an amazing God we see displayed in the book of Haggai thus far, all right? So in Haggai, all right, there's this message for the priests as well. And then we're going to get into the text because it's very simple to understand today. God reminds the priests of Judah, he says, listen, holiness is not contagious, but sin is. Your sin is contagious. And God is kind of reminding them, he is reminding them, not kind of, that everything that they did was becoming polluted and sinful because they did things in a wrong order, okay? They, they built an altar in a, in a foundation 
and they were offering sacrifices. And that's that you might think, okay, they're doing what God wants them to do. Yes, but in the wrong order. The way that things were supposed to happen was everything was supposed to be built, then sacrifices were supposed to be offered, and everything was supposed to be purified. Okay? So they, they didn't have the temple fully built, and so they, because they're doing things out of order, they're doing things wrong, that's sinful, so no matter what they do in regards to their worship of God, it's contaminated. Are you with me on that part so far? Everything is wrong because even though the motive is right, they're not following God's instructions. And so when he's given the priest's message, it sounds like he's being hard on them, but he's not. He's just reminding them of where they had been so that they can appreciate what God is going to do for them because now they're repenting and rebuilding the temple and he is with them, strengthening them to do the works that he has called them to do. And so this morning, we're going to look at our past and the blessing that is to come. So the first thing we see in Haggai is that, number one, when God's grace floods in, do not forget your past. When God's grace comes in, do not forget your past. Today's passage, if you look at the text in Haggai, chapter 2, it starts with the phrase, now then. That's sort of like a therefore when you read that in the New Testament. Okay, The therefores and the now thens, they call the listener to reflect on what was just said in order to grasp what is about to be said. Now then. In other words, in light of that, so I just gave you a recap. So that's the now then. All right, you got, you got it so far, okay? God's calling Judah now to look forward into relation to what was just said. But what was most recently said was this notion that sin is contagious and holiness is not. Sin is contagious. Everything Judah did was sinful because their hearts were not interested in doing the things of God, but rather their own, uh, doing them their own way. And so God brought temporary discipline upon them to get their attention. He's saying, Judah, consider the spiritual truth that holiness is not contagious, but sin is. In light of that, I want you to consider this truth. Consider that from this day on. Consider your former ways and how you did things backwards and how you were lazy for a while and how you didn't do what I asked you to do when you were building your own homes. Consider all of that and how it played out in your lives in a very frustrating way. You're going to be blessed, but don't forget where you came from. Just to ensure that they wouldn't forget that, God spells it out for them in the next few verses. So he's going to remind them in case they can't recall it themselves. In the rest of verse 15, God asked them a question. He says, before you resumed construction of the temple, before stone was placed upon stone, how did you do? How were things, Judah? How was it economically for you? Now remember, this application for us is different, okay? As I said before, you can't look to your checkbook, your bank account. You can't pull up your Chase app and be like, $2, God's not pleased with me, okay? It's, it's different be between us and Israel because their economic situ situation was an indicator of God's promise that he made to them in Deuteronomy 28, okay? We're gonna look at that in just a second. Remember, God made a covenant with them and he made some promises to bless them if they were faithful. And that had to do with produce in the land and, and their livestock. It, had, it was God's land. He said, I will bless my land to bless you when you're faithful to me. So we don't, we don't have this land that they do. So, and we're not in this covenant. And so I want, what I want you to do is I want you to look at Deuteronomy 20, 28. I'm not going to have it up on the screen. I'll just have the reference. But I want you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28. We're going to read a lengthy portion of Scripture because I reference it a lot when I'm preaching through Joel and Malachi, right? When I preach through the Old Testament minor prophets, this is often referred to, this covenant. And maybe you haven't read it, maybe you have, and maybe to understand its significance. I want us to look at it. Um, back when I was ordained here at Sovereign Way Christian Church, uh, I had to go through a bunch of questions, and one of the questions was, how does the end of Deuteronomy help make sense of the rest of the Old Testament? And so I'm like, what's at the end of Deuteronomy? I'm trying to find the answer in my head. I'm like, oh yeah, covenant blessings and cursings. Okay, easy question, right? <laughs> Maybe you don't think it's easy, right? I had to study for this, but it was probably my favorite question of the exam. Because if you don't understand what God says at the end of Deuteronomy, you won't get the big picture of Israel's ups and downs in the rest of the Old Testament. 
It is one of the most important keys in the Old Testament to understanding the rest of the Old Testament. The most important key is Christ. Christ is the most important key. You cannot unlock anything in the Old Testament without Christ. But the second great key, all right, the backup key, the second most important, I think, is this one, or one of them, I should say. Maybe second most, I don't know, third most. It's crucial. So let's read it. I'm not going to expound upon it because it's pretty self-explanatory. But the first part we're going to read about is the blessings for faithfully loving him and faithfully obeying God. This is to Israel. Verse 1 of 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. So they're going to stand out. And all these blessings shall come upon you and, and overtake you. Do you see that? The blessings are going to overtake them. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Verse 3. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be, shall be the fruit of, of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Verse 5. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that your Lord, your God, has given you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. Well, hopefully, real quick, you can see that this is all for the glory of God. This is all to make God's name great. Verse 11, And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and the fruit of your ground, with the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. And the Lord will open up to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its due season and bless all the, the work of your hands. Remember in Joel, we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks, but remember the rain that God is going to send? You see where this is coming from now, right? We read on, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall... Only go up and not down if you obey the commands of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. So ultimately, that's what's going on. Anytime uh, Judah is blessed or Israel is blessed, they are being faithful to not serve other gods. They are being faithful to God. Thus, he unleashes and unloads and blessings overtake them. Right? That's why we make these connections in Malachi. And as I'm preaching through Joel, you can see why the land was devastated, even though we don't know the reason. They were serving some other god somehow, some way, and God stripped the land, okay? But now, verse 15, we come to the sanctions or the curses if they break covenant with God. This section is actually a lot longer. I'm not gonna read it all. I'm just gonna read to verse 24, but you can see how much longer, if you continue to read, it goes on. It's It's... Like three times as much as the blessings. It's huge. Verse 15 says, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds. So God's not just tripping here. It's because they are evil, because you have forsaken me. Verse 21, the Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until it has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth 
under you shall be iron. And the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Again, the curses go on a lot longer than we read. But God promises to let their enemies overtake them, we see. Promises for their vineyards to fail. Promises that they'll be slaves to other nations under rulers. The sanctions go on and on. It's quite a heavy passage. And it's designed to let Israel know that God hates sin and that he judges sin, that he is holy, and that he, will, he is jealous and will not share his glory with another. That if anyone is outside of covenant relationship with God, that they are damned and not blessed. Let me say it again. Anyone that is outside of covenant relationship with God is damned and not blessed. And so now you can see in Haggai why Judah was struggling again. It's, it's crazy when you think about it. They were under Babylonian slavery, all right, oppression for violating Deuteronomy 28 for 70 years. That's a long time. 70 years. God lists that 70 years of punishment, which is an act of grace, an act of salvation. And now 18 years later, they're again fading away from God. You would, did they forget so quickly what they were experiencing? Apparently they had. They were in a period of restoration of grace when God freed them and allowed them to go back. And yet here they are returning to sin, and God begins to initiate the curses once again, but not in totality. And so God asked the question we read in Scripture. How are you doing this time, Judah? When you expected to get 20 heaps, all right, all right, 20 measures, you got 10. You yielded only 50% of what your labors should have produced. Can you imagine taking a 50% pay cut? All right, some of us have during this inflationary time. Even if it's, maybe it isn't in the amount that you make, but in the cost of goods. And there are some people who have actually made less because Inflation affects businesses, okay? And so some businesses aren't having as much business, and so people are making less money. When it came to wine, you expected 50 measures, and you only got 20. A 60% cut in the vineyards and what their, wine, uh, their vineyards were producing in regards to wine. And then God takes responsibility for their hardship to let them know that this wasn't pure chance, but rather punishment inflicted upon him for their rebellion, he said that whatever they toiled and worked and set out to do, God struck them with blight, mildew, and hail. Blight, mildew, and hail. And they still did not return to the Lord. Blight is a disease that kills vegetation, but the word blight also means blasting. Blasting. So it might refer to the scorching dry winds and the heat that kills crops. Mildew is a fungus that kills vegetation, and we know that that comes from excess moisture. So you have these, possibly these two extremes of dryness and moisture killing things. And we understand what hailstones are, okay? They damage these ice rocks, sometimes softball size, sometimes golf ball size, sometimes smaller, but they can damage crops as they strike with speed and force. The Lord is calling them to remember these curses that he promised upon them and their devastation. And there's no avoiding the fact that God is the one who frustrated them according to what he promised to do in Deuteronomy 28. This was their past prior to resuming construction on the temple. And even then they did not return to the Lord. So this is the first thing that they were to consider from this day on. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget how sin affected you. Don't forget the judgments of God. Don't forget that you were outside, that you, you were outside of covenant with God. And you were damned. Fix this in your minds, Judah. Establish it. And church, maybe you can see the underlying message that God has for us in this text as we see how it applies to them. Now, for 18 years now, or actually 16 because they were working for a couple, but they neglected the temple of the Lord while they tended their own homes. On top of that, again, worship was in a wrong order. They didn't build everything in the correct order. And so uh, what we see elsewhere in Scripture is that there were people that did it right. They had it backwards, right? They built the altar in the temple and started offering sacrifices when they should have offered everything and purified it. And so their sin was just infecting everything. In 2 Chronicles, King Hezekiah, he set things in order 
and leading people to godliness. And he required the consecration of the priests, that they be set apart for God and cleansed. He required cleansing the temple and purifying all the utensils, purifying the altar. And this, this, this purifying that he required before any sacrifices were offered took 16 days, 16 days of purification before atonement sacrifices were made, before burnt offerings were made, before drink offerings were made and fellowship offerings, 16 days of cleansing. It needed to be done right or else it would not be holy before the Lord. We see Moses doing the exact same thing with the tabernacle. And here in Haggai, the foundation is in disrepair. There's no temple. And they're offering sacrifices that are not acceptable to God because the whole structure and process has not been done so. Again, so no matter how well-intentioned they are, things are bad, so God is bringing discipline upon them, okay? But they have now repented. They are righting what is wrong, and they are rebuilding, and God is going to remove the curses and bring back the blessings if they stay in repentance. Now, for a moment, let us, let us consider our past, not our individual past, although you might consider your individual past, but I want us to consider our collective past because God is not just in covenant with individuals, but with people, with a group, with his church. Israel was God's Old Testament people, and now God's covenant people are the church, is the church, I should say, which is comprised of Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers. What is our past? Ephesians 2 tells us what our past is. So there is a now then for us. Consider what is to come, but the now then points us back. And Ephesians 2 points us back. Ephesians 2 says we used to be dead in our sins. We used to be dead in our sins, not alive to God. We were spiritually unable to respond to God. Ephesians tells us we followed the pattern of this world. This is all of us. Me and you, brother and sister. We follow the pattern of this world, which implies that we were friends with the world and we were enemies of God. We actually followed Satan. We were sons of disobedience. We carried out our sinful desires, not God's desires. Ephesians goes on, we were children of wrath, under the wrath and judgment of God. We were separated from Christ, alienated from the covenant promises and blessings of God. We were far off from God, aliens from the house of God. Romans tells us that we were under God's condemnation. Galatians tells us that we were enslaved to the principles of this world. Second Timothy tells us that we were captured by Satan to do his will. Colossians tells us that we were in the domain of darkness. James tells us that we were enemies of God. Revelation 21 tells us that these sorts of people are bound for the lake of fire for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, that is what it looks like to rebel against God and to be outside of covenant with God under his curses. If you are a Christian, this is our collective past. This is our collective past. That might fly over you. Matthew, that's your collective past. John, that's our past. Fernando, that, that's, that's us right there, right, brother? John, that's me. David, I'm only calling out the men, right? I can call out some women. Anna, Michelle, this is our collective past. Let's make it personal. Because sometimes when a pastor's preaching, is stressing to everybody, not to me. No, this, this is us. All of us. This is something that we should never forget. Ephesians reminds us what we should not forget. From this day onward, do not forget what you once were. That such were some of us. We used to be these people. There's a place and time for, for forgetting what is behind you, like the Apostle Paul said. But those things had to do with earthly achievements that he thought were going to get him right before God. There's a time for, we should forget self-righteousness and not use that as a means of salvation because it doesn't work. But one thing we should never forget, one thing that Scripture will never let us forget, one thing that we will never be able to forget is our collective past. 
Not even in eternity, in the new creation, will you be able to forget what you once were. There will be a grace that will allow you to remember it so that you do not uh, mourn or grieve or be paralyzed by it. But forever, as we behold the crucified Savior, we will be reminded of what he died for and who he died for and why he had to die. We will see those scars in his hands. Behold the hands. You want to see the, 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 the hole in my side where I took that spear for you? And we will look at his face and behold where that crown of thorns scraped his forehead and the nails in his feet. We will behold the Lamb of God who was slain from before the foundation of the world. And we will not be able to forget that he died and rose again for us. From this day on, we are not able to ever forget. So don't ever forget in light of God's grace. When God's grace is shown to you, do not ever forget what you were. Not so that you can be shamed, but so that you will not go back there and not return to the mess and the slime and to the miry clay that the Lord pulled you out of. Right? We were like dogs returning to vomit. Scum-sucking pigs, as one comedian once said. We were filthy animals, disgusting, before God, and he saved us. But we have repented, and that should cause us to rejoice. And so, church, let us not forget what God has saved us from. Let us for not, not forget the past transgressions and condition that we were in, the judgment that we were under that necessitated God's grace and mercy. Let us not forget what it's like to be outside of God's love and covenant. From this day on, remember our poor, past, pitiful condition that we were stuck in until God delivered us. Because you weren't going to get out of that unless God lifted you out. Secondly, we see that when grace floods in, not only should you not forget your past, but when grace floods in, don't forget your future. Don't forget your future. Now, that sounds a little strange to say because the future hasn't happened. I don't have any future memories. I hope you don't, okay, unless you're from the future, in which I would like to know who wins the World Series next year. I can make a big bet on it and get rich, right? Ain't going to happen, all right? But we have to remember our collective future. This is precisely what God is asking Judah to do by extension, us. Look how the Lord says it. Consider from this day onward. From today forward, keep remembering, keep it in thought. Don't forget, from the 24th day of the ninth month, don't forget what I'm about to tell you. And what the Lord says next is pure grace. They have repented, and so his promise to restore them according to his covenant is coming. Since the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, he said, God asked them to consider a few more things. Now, this is referring to the repairing of the foundation that was completed some 16 years ago. Sixteen years ago, the temple foundation was laid and finished, but it needed to be refinished and restored, right? Because it had fallen in disrepair after 16 years. That's why Haggai is speaking about the temple foundation being laid. The temple construction could not resume until the foundation was repaired, right? You don't, you don't, you don't build the floor after you build the building. You build the foundation first. But what the Lord asked them to consider it's just the exact opposite of what he, uh, he's asking them to now consider. What he's asking them to consider is different than what they were supposed to consider, all right? The past. And so he asks this question, is the seed in the barn? The answer is no. There's no seed in the barn. Why? Because they've taken what they had and they put it in the ground to plant. And God tells them, he says this, the crops, he asks them, have they produced any fruit yet? And the answer is no, all right? Why not? Are they stoned under the discipline of God? No, he promises to bless them. The reason there's no crops yet is not because they failed, because it's not harvest time yet. You've got to have time for the crops to grow. You don't plant a seed in one day and have fruit the next day. Not in this world, right? And this was very important for Judah to understand, all right? God says, indeed, though, it's coming. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing yet, but it is coming, very important. With Judah, they needed things to make things to drink so they would have grapes, right? Make uh, wine. With figs, you could make cakes. You could make wine as well. Pomegranates were not only fruit to be eaten, but they were used for dyes and clothing. Olives 
were not just to be eaten, but oil could be extracted for cooking and for used to be, uh, make, make lights and lamps. And so these harvests were important, not just for food, but for commerce, for economics, for profiting, for making money, for surviving in day-to-day activities. And as we learned from Joel, they were important because you couldn't offer up a thank offering or a drink offering to God if you didn't have any harvests. Previously, they planted seeds, and they only produced a fraction of what they were supposed to because of God's judgment. But now in a state of repentance, they no doubt are probably wondering, is God going to do what God said he would do? They're planting the seeds and they're like, oh man, I hope we don't see more devastation, more blight, more mildew, more hell. I hope these things produce more than 50% this time. Because when you've gone through a long hardship like that, the tendency is to wonder if you're ever going to get out of it, Right? If you remember the recession from 2008, 9, and 10, we were out of it in 11 and 12, but it didn't feel like it, right? We were still reaping the consequences of it. Right now, we're going through inflation and all that stuff, and even if whenever we get out of it, I guarantee it won't feel like we're out of it, even if we are out of it. It's still going to be rough, right? So they're thinking some of the similar things. Man, are we going to reap anything? They have no way to tell. A little scared, maybe. And then God intervenes and says, from this day on, I will bless you. The creator of the universe would govern creation in such a way that they would be provided for so that they would prosper as they obeyed the voice of God. Curses would be lifted according to Deuteronomy 28. And they were not to forget what God promised in the future. They were to remember future grace. They were to remember future grace. In church, we must do the same. In light of our repentance toward God, in light of our faith in Christ, we must remember that the grace that is coming to us, but we have not yet received. We are going to receive future grace. Right now in Christ, we are forgiven. We are no longer condemned. We have been given new life. We have been given a new heart. And we are assured that God will keep us from breaking covenant with him. We are united to Christ and indwelt by the Spirit. We are loved by God. We are being sanctified and set apart from sin by God. We are adopted. We are born again. We are justified and declared righteous in his eyes, even though we are simultaneously sinners. We are friends of God, and that's because we now have God's grace. We are no longer under the threat of God, no longer under the curse of sin and the curse of the law, but we still have future grace to look forward to. Everything that I just read to you now and described to you and said to you is all what we have now. There is future grace We look forward to the day in the future when our bodies, our old bodies are gone and we have new bodies that will never die and get sick. We look forward to the day when sin will no longer have its dominion in our members, when we will be fixated or fixed, I should say, fixed in a state of righteousness. We look forward to the day when we are reunited with Christians that have died before us. We look forward to the new creation, a real physical earth to dwell on with no corruption, our promised land. We look forward to resting from our labors. We look forward to enjoying life as God intended for us. We look forward to the justice that will be established on this planet. We look forward to when Satan is cast into the lake of fire. We look forward, most of all, to being with God face to face. With Christ, the one who was crucified, buried, and risen again. We look forward to a joy that is unspeakable and full of the glory of God. We look forward to getting to know our God for all eternity with ever increasing joy as we get to know Him more and more. And we get to share each other, as I mentioned earlier, all the new things we learned about God for all eternity. Church, we have future grace to look forward to, grace that we must not forget. And for the life of me, I don't know why any unbeliever would not want this grace. Why would you not want the blessings of God? Do you hate your own life? Do you despise who you are that you would not want God to love on you? Why would you you refuse God's goodness? Why would you want his curses? Why? Why? It doesn't make any sense. When you read the story of Judah and Israel, you're like, why are they doing what they're doing over and over again? They could have it so well if they would just turn to God. And then you realize 
That's humanity's story, not just Israel's story. That's meant to show the sinners that that's what we do. We snub our nose at God and say, I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't like the way you made me. I don't like the way that you're telling me to live. And God's like, why? It's all supposed to be for your good. I got it figured out. I'm going to do things my way and rebel against you. You're okay. Just know that curses are coming. But if you return to him, you will be blessed above all because he will be your God and you will be his, his possession. It's, it's, it's almost unfathomable, but that, listen, that is the nature of sin. It lies to you. That is the nature of Satan. He blinds you from seeing the glory of God and how desirable it is and how much he loves you. He lies to you, and we hear the lies so long because they come from people that we know, people that we care for, people that we've had long relationships with. We, we don't believe God. We believe these other lies, and we begin to fall the way, and we think God is the one who is wrong, and we're just deceived, and we can't see past our deception. And the Word of God is there to rip off those blinders so that you can see that God desires to bless he does. That's what grace is. So if you're an unbeliever, not a Christian, I need to reemphasize that God's grace only comes when you're in covenant with him. Apart from him, the only thing you have to look forward to is curses and damnation. And the scripture is designed to show you what you can have in God. Don't say no any longer. Come to him. Like Judah, come on his terms. God calls all people to repent of their sin and to obey his word. He calls us to put our confidence in Jesus Christ, who was a curse for us. Jesus Christ, who was cursed for us, who took our sin upon his body and suffered and died on the cross and took the damnation that we took. In essence, it would be like uh, Jesus taking the curses of Deuteronomy 18, uh, 28 for the sins that Israel did, right? If Israel did wrong, they should get that. But imagine if Jesus' land was struck so that he had no food. And he's paying the penalty. In essence, that's what Jesus did by dying on the cross. We deserve to die for our rebellion against God. He died in our place so that we wouldn't have to receive the curse of God. Instead, the life that Jesus earned, that blessed life, because he lived perfectly, never sinning, the riches and the blessing that he deserves for obedience to God, like, like Israel was supposed to get blessing in a, for their obedience, Jesus earned blessing from God, and he gives it to us, us sinners, so that, God, so that we have riches from God. Do you understand how Haggai is meant to show you Christ now and the blessing of salvation? And so you must believe. You must turn from sin as Israel must turn from their sin and turn to Jesus who suffered for you, who can give you his blessings so that you can inherit eternal life forever. When you put your trust in him and only him to save you, God declares you not guilty. He removes your sin. He gives you Jesus' perfection, and you are declared righteous in God's size, even though you're imperfect. And that is how the blessings of God flow to you. And that is why we must look to our past and never forget. Remember who you were. Remember where you are going. And never go back to where you were. And stay on the path to where you are going. God has set you on that path. He has put your feet upon a rock. Anything else is an unsure foundation. Stay with Christ and you are forever more blessed, church. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, 